Hey, welcome back to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. My name is Andrew. I am one of the pastors here, and uh, it's been amazing to journey with you over the last 13 weeks through this survey of the book of Revelation. And like I've mentioned many times already, the heartbeat behind our approach to this has been to unpack some of the major themes, theology, and practical application from this book, and specifically how we can follow the way of the Lamb, how we can follow Jesus in a culture and environment that is aggressively and increasingly aggressively opposed to Him and His way, to His kingdom and his ideas for how to be fully human, how to live according to the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the dragon who we've uh, uncovered in Revelation is a reference to Satan. And so I hope you've been encouraged and challenged uh, as I have even studying through this. There has been, uh, I don't think I've ever uh, spent so much time just pouring over material and even for this look at chapter 20 man I have spent I don't even I can't even count how many hours I have spent studying and um, as I've you know want to just point out that Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6 are for sure the most controversial in all of the book of Revelation and potentially even in all of the Bible. And so we're going to dive into those today. And as we do that, I just, uh, we had a bit of a technical problem on Sunday. So that was yesterday. I'm recording this the day after I preached it. And yesterday we had a bit of a problem with our recording. It We didn't capture the first half of the message. And so I am going to do my best to walk through that and there'll be a bit of an awkward transition in the middle of this from this. I'm sitting here uh, at our church the day after, there's nobody around. Um, It's actually kind of nice, but uh, I don't know, maybe you'll like this better than you like listening to me preach and that's totally fine. I'll leave that up to you to judge. But um, uh, the only thing I'm super bummed about is we don't get to hear Mark Reed. Um, I'm not going to mention his last name on this podcast, but it was amazing having Mark Reed because every week we've been reading the full text. And so you're just left with my boring old voice reading Revelation 20. Before we do that, I want to just pray. And uh, then, like I said, I'll enter into the first bit of our message here in this format, and then we'll have like an awkward transition, <laughs> and I'll send you off to the second half, which was recorded live uh, in church yesterday. Uh, so let's just pray. Jesus, uh, I didn't even expect to need to do this, um, but I'm thankful for your faithfulness and your goodness to all of us. Um, in every situation, every season of life, you are totally dependable and trustworthy. And so I just submit myself to you again, and everyone under the sound of my voice, even right now listening to this, we bring ourselves under your Lordship, 
under your authority, under the covering of your blood, Jesus. And I declare my allegiance to you, Jesus. I declare you Lord of my life. I renounce anything um, that I have engaged in that has grieved you or quenched you, anything that I've thought or said or done or seen or anything like that that has grieved or quenched you. I I just renounce that now in Jesus' name. and. Um, I command any unholy power that would want to exert influence in these moments to twist or distort or um, or confuse the words of God, His the testimony of the word of God as we are digging into this in Jesus' name. I forbid the enemy of God from exerting any power or influence or authority. I command him to be restrained now from blinding us to the truth of the kingdom of God. Um, and I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, unleash revelation in us, that you would unleash in us uh, um, a, a greater capacity to hear you, to understand your word, to comprehend and grasp everything that you have um, intended for us in these moments, for myself and everybody on the other end of this, listening to this, we just give ourselves to you in Jesus' name, amen. So, hey, let me read Revelation 20, as we have been doing, and uh, we'll walk into the first bit of this in this format. Revelation 20, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom author the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. For his presence, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, 
standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, like I mentioned uh, just previously here, this chapter, and specifically verses 1 to 6, might be the most difficult and controversial chapter in all of Revelation, maybe even the whole Bible. Um, the content of this thousand year or what some people call, well, basically what everybody calls the millennial reign, millennial meaning thousand year reign of Christ. And what it is has been the subject of great debate, great scholarly research, uh, much passion. Many, many books have been written about this. Um, Man, you you could movies have been made about this. Like, I grew up, um, you know, as a youngster in the early '80s. I was born in the late '70s, and the Thief in the Night video series was like I watched that stuff, and that was all uh, filmed with a certain uh, perspective, interpretation of these verses in mind. And then you have the Left Behind. Um, book series that became like a global huge phenomenon sell you know probably millions and millions of copies which then turned into movies which Kirk Cameron starred in and um, and so people are very passionate about their interpretation of these verses and I want to just say that one thing we have to, we have to, have to, have to keep in the forefront is the contents of these verses are secondary in importance to the greater reality that we can all agree on, which is Jesus is coming back. He rose from the dead in bodily form. He was um, ascended to heaven in bodily form. He is ruling and reigning right now in heavenly places. He's ruling and reigning right now through his, his bride, the church on the earth. Jesus is coming back in bodily form. We will, those who are in Christ, who have a, are following Jesus, who have surrendered their life to him, will be resurrected with new heavenly bodies on a new and restored earth. Uh, the heavens and the earth will be made new by Jesus and we will reign and rule with him for eternity. Sin and death and the devil will be done away with once and for all. That is important. That is something that we need to fight for. Um, that's something we can all agree on. How we exactly get to that is up for debate and is secondary. And so these first six verses in Revelation 20 um, seem to deal potentially with the how 
Uh, but this is the only time in Scripture, the only place in Scripture where this idea of a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ is mentioned. And so we have to hold these things really loosely. And like I've mentioned many times already, um, our posture, my posture um, right now, and my, my heart posture for this whole series has been to walk with humility and gentleness in all of these things. And uh, my, my intention is not to provoke you or to upset you or to be argumentative just for the sake of being argumentative. I, can, I, I get to do that at home often. <laughs> so um, I, uh, I, I, I want us to have that right in the forefront for ourselves as we step into this. There are three primary ways of interpreting these verses. There's a fourth, um, a preterist and hyperpreterist. I'm not going to cover those. I'm going to cover sort of these three primary ways that people have interpreted these verses. And the first way is um, what's called premillennial. That is the viewpoint that I grew up with that certainly for the last, oh man, 100, 150 years in Western, especially American evangelical circles, the premillennial view has been the dominant view. It has been the view, um, and the reason that it's been so dominant is uh, the most famous um, preachers, evangelists, people with like online, not online because back in the 80s, but people with TV ministries, authors writing books, pastors writing books. Many of the most famous ones have held this view. And so it's, it, it had, um, you know, a monopoly, as it were, in the Christian circles in terms of how to interpret these verses. You um, would have people like Jack Van Impey, uh, Chuck Swindoll, David Jeremiah, Billy Graham, Bill Bright, um, huge ministry, Dr. Charles Stanley. Like the list just goes on and on. Jack Hagee, the list goes on and on and on of these major influential ministries that were led by great men of faith who held this pre-millennial view. And, and uh, I don't want to get into the technical language too much of it, but along with this would be a dispensational uh, pre-tribulation rapture pre-millennial viewpoint. And so what that means with that, I'll just give you a very quick, very broad overview. I recognize here I'm not hitting any of the nuance in this, just a very quick overview, because my purpose here uh, today in Unpacking 20 is not going to be to go into a long, protracted uh, sort of for and against dialogue or debate about each viewpoint. I'm going to present you with the one that um, I hold presently, and uh, which has been the viewpoint that we've looked at the whole book of Revelation through. But this premillennial view um, often begins with a dispensational perspective. 
And that uh, word is, uh, man, it's hard to unpack that word. Um, basically that at the end of the day means that um, there are certain people that view history as having very distinct dispensations, very distinct periods. And a hallmark of dispensationalism is they believe in a, in a very uh, radical separation between Israel as a nation state and the church. And they believe that um, we, we are in a church age dispensation and that coming up next on this prophetic calendar, if, if, if you would, would be the secret rapture of the church. So the followers of Jesus being secretly raptured off the earth. I talked about why I've moved away from that position uh, a number of weeks ago. You can go back and try and find that. I forget which week I even talked about that in, but uh, that's a position I grew up with that I used to hold that I no longer hold, um, a pre-tribulation secret rapture of the church. But for pre-millennials often, that comes with a belief that the next major event is going to be the secret rapture of the church, uh, where uh, the followers of Jesus will be taken up off the earth. And uh, that will introduce seven years of tribulation and God's focus will shift. That's, this is what dispensationals believe. His focus will shift then from the church back to Israel where um, he will then deal with Israel in a fulfillment of uh, all of these sort of biblical uh, prophecies. And uh, there's a lot of really um, complex things that need to happen in there. But just this idea is that the church and Israel are treated very differently by God. And so in this view, they believe that um, the secret rapture of the church happens next then we enter into seven years of tribulation, after which then Christ will come back to the earth with uh, the followers of Jesus and rule and reign on the earth, literally and physically for a thousand years, at which point at the end of that, Satan will launch a final last ditch global effort to destroy Jesus and uh, the followers of Jesus, but he will be defeated uh, by Jesus, which will then um, usher in uh, the recreation of the heavens and the earth and eternity with Christ on the earth, ruling and reigning with him, uh, with sin and death and Satan being dealt with. So this, this pre-millennial view believes that the 1,000 years that John is talking about, we just read about them in verses one to six, are a literal 1,000 years where Jesus physically reigns on the earth. And uh, that's, so that's the one major viewpoint. That's by far and away the, the dominant, has been the dominant viewpoint. Although I, I think over the last maybe, I don't know, even 20 years, um, there's more and more, uh, there's more and more pastors, and certainly a lot of the the uh, pastors and scholars that I've been studying and reading through Revelation have been shifting out of that perspective, or certain parts of it. The second viewpoint 
that uh, is used to interpret these is called post-millennial. So we had pre-millennial, like before the millennium, uh, and which is a reference to Christ's kind of return. Um, the, the second viewpoint is post-millennial. So like that prefix post, they believe that Jesus is coming back after this thousand-year millennium that John mentions. Um, traditionally, most post-millennials would hold a symbolic view of this thousand years, like the, that the number 1,000 is symbolic to reference uh, an age of completeness um, and uh, of complete fulfillment of all of the purposes and plans of God, but that at the end of that age, whenever that is, Jesus will come back. One of the key sort of hallmarks of post-millennialism is the belief that um, as the gospel advances on the earth, even now, more and more of the earth will become Christianized. So um, nation after nation after nation will become Christian and that Jesus will come back essentially. And again, this is a very, very broad and crude sort of um, uh, example here. Uh, so I, I apologize if you're post-millennial listening to this and I'm not going into the necessary nuance, I'm sorry. But um, that as the earth is Christianized, Jesus will come back at a point at which the gospel is flourishing and dominant all over the earth, where many nations, maybe all of them, nations have come uh, formally as national states, sort of politically and socially and culturally to follow Jesus. They've been Christianized. And this is um, just as an aside, um, this is... For a number of Christian leaders right now, as they look at the world around and what's happening geopolitically, what's happened through COVID and other things, um, there are a number of leaders who hold this view, which is why, just for your own reference point, I'm not saying this is wrong or right necessarily, I'm just making an observation, which is why they have um, been strong on our need as Christians and their view to oppose government because uh, in, in the backdrop of their whole view, the, the purposes of God are to, um, to create Christian nations and nation states. And so um, that's, that's sort of like a key feature of this. And um, there's not many, I don't think, who have done it, but that can lead to some pretty dysfunctional areas of Christian nationalism and expressions of that that are not actually scriptural or biblical. I don't think most post-millennials would be like that, but um, so that's the second view. So we had pre-millennial, um, that Jesus is coming back to rapture the church, and then uh, there'll be tribulation, and then um, he'll come down and rule and reign with the, his followers on the earth for a thousand years, literally. And uh, post-millennial, take that thousand years to be figurative, and Jesus will come at the end 
when basically after the whole earth has been Christianized, essentially. Then the third view we'll talk about, and this would be the view that I hold presently. Again, I hold that very loosely, um, not dogmatically, um, but with humility, is called millennial, And um, that name is a bit of a misnomer. Um, some people prefer inaugurated millennium as an alternative to that name. That alpha prefix, that A, seems to indicate that someone who holds this view does not believe there is a millennium. That's not true. The amillennial also, like the postmillennial, views the thousand-year reign of Christ as uh, described by John in chapter 21 to 6 as symbolic. So both amillennial and postmillennial, by and large, view that as symbolic. Um, the amillennial difference from the post-millennial is that the amillennial believes that this thousand-year reign is happening right now, that we are in the midst of it. So um, the, the millennial reign that John is describing in verses 1 to 6, in, in my opinion, as somebody who kind of has landed in this amillennial camp, is, um, is the church age, the um, reign, rule and reign of Jesus uh, is happened and was inaugurated at his resurrection. And it will continue until his return. And so for the amillennial perspective of these verses, we are in the midst of this thousand year reign. It's a symbolic length of time. A, a 1,000 again is 10 to the power of three. Biblically, 10 is a number for completeness. It's also a number for testing. And we've, we've been introduced to this concept of Christians undergoing testing in a significant way all through this book of Revelation. So um, this number 1,000 is symbolic, uh, in my opinion, and uh, symbolic and is uh, a symbol of um, a complete measure of time um, for testing. Uh, three, so 10 to the power of three, three is an, is number for perfection and of God. And uh, so that this is a, an, an indefinite or not indefinite, but uh, whatever, uh, a nonspecific amount of time that is a complete amount of time from God's perspective. Um, and so the first question that we have to ask, and I'm going to just back up, uh, that we need to ask is, is uh, Revelation 21 to 6 symbolic or is it literal? And I've just gone through sort of the three major views uh, with you. I would argue that it's symbolic. And John is talking about symbolism here. And um, just so you know, too, I, I've been teaching this. We've been teaching this whole overview through Revelation from an amillennial standpoint, which means that we take much of the book of Revelation symbolically. It doesn't mean that John isn't referencing real things, but Revelation, um, right from chapter one, we're told that this is prophetic, visionary, apocalyptic. It is an apocalypse, but it's prophetic, visionary, uh, descriptive writing. And so right from verse one, we're told that this book is 
filled with symbolism. So in order to take Revelation literally, we have to read it symbolically, by and large. There are places where um, the, the meaning is expressed in plain detail, but um, one of the major sort of charges against all millennialists, especially from premillennialists, is that we are not serious about um, our study of Scripture and taking Scripture literally. And so I feel that's an unfair, um, that's an unfair characterization uh, to be made, absolutely unfair. We, to, to read Revelation literally is to actually see the depth of its symbolism and to understand that. So why do I believe that verses 1 to 6 are symbolic? All right. First thing, um, which John states right at the beginning of verse 1, chapter 20, I saw. So the I saw, again, it sets us in a symbolic prophetic reality. So in the same way that in chapter 112, John says the same thing. Um, in the same way in chapter 1 and 2, we're introduced to this first vision, this first I saw that John had where he sees seven golden lampstands, but is later told by Jesus that those uh, lampstands were symbolic for the seven churches. So what John saw as a lampstand was not something that he was to interpret literally and then go around looking for seven golden lampstands. So much of Revelation, a a huge chunk of Revelation, we cannot expect a one-to-one sort of correlation between what John sees and what is meant, the meaning behind it. And so I think that this is what is happening when John introduces this idea of this thousand-year reign of Christ with the words, I saw, I believe he's bringing us back into this framework that we've seen so many times through the book so far. So there's not a one-to-one correlation or a literal connection between what is seen and what is meant. Um, There are a few other clues to me that are important in discerning whether this is literal or symbolic. I want to go through a few of them with you now. Number one, the number 1,000 in Scripture is almost always, or maybe always, used figuratively. So in Psalms, you know, um, God is said to own the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, if are we to take that literally or figuratively? What about the cattle on the thousand and first hill? Is that up for grabs? Um, we're told that... Um, you know, a thousand years is like a day for God. So is that a, a rule um, and meant to be specific and binding in that way? Or is there a principle that is behind that? And so over and over, when the number 1,000 is used in Scripture, it's symbolic. And I think that John uh, would have kind of picked up on that being a student of the Old Testament as he was. Number two, um, the numbers in the book of Revelation itself are almost always symbolic. And we've talked about this over and over again. 
So um, if the numbers in Revelation are almost always symbolic, and I understand that a premillennialist would argue with that and say, no, they're not always symbolic. I think there will be a literal seven-year tribulation. And um, so I understand there's a difference of, of perspective and conviction with that. But uh, the, in my opinion, over and over and over again, these numbers in Revelation are symbolic. And even when you get into the other major hot button topic, the number 144,000, when you really get into studying that and you study the list of the tribes that is there, which is not really a list of tribes, it's uh, um, uh, this hybrid mixture of tribes and uh, the sons of um, Jacob and all of these things, you realize that it, it uh, in my humble opinion, it can't be taken as a literal number. They're all called male virgins. Uh, are we really to believe um, taken literally that that number 144,000 is um, specifically going to be 144,000 male Jewish virgin men, and that those are the ones like so. We, we, this stuff starts to break down really quickly when we take a literal view often. So, number one, um, John says, I saw it. that sets us in a prophetic framework, a symbolic framework, figurative framework. Number two, the number 1,000 in Scripture is almost always used figuratively. Number three, the numbers in Revelation are almost always symbolic. Number four, um, we're told that he sees thrones. Um, that word thrones are used 37 times in Revelation, and every time they're set within the spiritual realm, not earthly thrones are used as a symbol of authority in revelation not a literal throne and so is again the question is john are we to believe john is seeing literal physical thrones on the earth that all of the followers of jesus are sitting on no um all through revelation when thrones have been used they've been, they've been used to um to express spiritual realities, to express things seen in heavenly places. And uh, lastly, the language of um, that the great angels carrying the keys of the great abyss and the great chains that they bound Satan with um, are symbolic. Uh, Jesus in, I think in chapter one, said, I hold the keys of um, you know death and Hades, I think it was, or something close to that. It was Jesus talking about literal, you know, metal, aluminum keys? No, he wasn't. This is that same type of language. Keys talking about authority and the capacity to have authority over and great chains. The, the Satan is a spiritual being. Um, it would be not consistent, I think, logically, to believe that Satan, a spiritual being, is that uh, what John is saying is he's going to be bound with physical chains. That's, this is symbolism. And so um, these sort of set the, 
the entire context of this uh, first six verses in a symbolic way, again, in my humble opinion, not in a literal way. And so I, uh, I believe that we need to um, just weigh these things and measure them. And um, so Revelation 21 to 6 is not speaking of a literal 1,000-year period where Jesus comes to earth to rule and reign in a physical way. Revelation 1 to 6 is talking about the, the, the church age or what the Bible calls the last days. The last days, from a biblical perspective, are the days between um, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the time when he comes back. Peter was clear about that when he quoted Joel at the beginning of Acts, that these we are living in the last days. And so if you ask me, are we living in the last days? Yes, we are living in the last days. Are we living in the very, 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 very last days? I don't know. Maybe we are, maybe we are. I know that every generation has believed um, to a certain degree that they were living in the last days. I, I know my Oma and Opa, as they fled the war uh, in Europe, World War II, traveled by foot and by, you know, um, horse and cart over the battlefields of Europe. You can, you better believe they were thought, they thought they were living in the last days. Every generation has experienced these sort of cataclysmic moments on earth where we believed we were living in the last days. Do you think that those who were present um, when Pompeii, uh, you know, uh, Mount Vesuvius, I think it was, erupted over Pompeii. Do you think that they were maybe seeing some of these prophetic revelate, like that they were in these last days? They probably did. And I'm sure that those who lived through these major events in history over and over again believed they were living in the last days. And in fact, biblically, we are. The question is, um, can you look at the news cycle and determine whether or not we're living in the last days. And this is where we've gotten into many, many problems. Um, because people have been so keen to try and, in, uh, you know, sort of read the tea leaves and interpret re Revelation through the headlines to kind of look forward to, hey, when is the return of Christ going to come? When is the secret rapture of the church maybe going to happen? Maybe we're getting close to everybody. We're getting really, really close to everybody. Um, we've used the headlines in the news and geopolitical events to interpret something that the Bible gives no specificity to. Even Jesus himself said that the Father only knows. The Son doesn't even know. So how in the world are we supposed to interpret? And then we have Christian authors, I think well-meaning for sure, that make these bold predictions and maybe even some would say uh, prophecies. You know, that book in 1988, 88 Reasons Why the Lord is Going to Return in 1988. Well, that didn't work out so well. And uh, we have uh, pastors today just looking at what's happening in the oil markets and what's happening in Iran and in Russia and these the the war in Ukraine, people looking at the pandemic now um, as a sign that we are in the last last days. But this pandemic is nothing compared to 
um, you know, the, the Black Plague that, that wiped out a third of Europe. Like there have been many of these sort of things. And uh, so um, we need to be careful about that. And that can be a, that can be um, a trouble spot for people that are interpreting Revelation and specifically these verses literally who hold a premillennialist premillennialist view. Um, There can be this great fervor and um, great interest in trying to sort of read what's happening politically around us and uh, what's happening in the environment and on the earth and make predictions about when uh, the rapture is going to take place. And it's, I just, uh, in gentleness, I just want to say it's never worked yet. (laughs) So what are we going to learn not to do that? And so I believe John is speaking here uh, symbolically. Uh, The fact that it hasn't worked, that's not why I take a symbolic view. It's all of the reasons listed above. So number one, um, these first six verses, in my opinion, are symbolic, not literal. Question two we have to ask, where is this taking place then? So if this is symbolic, where is it taking place? And um, the uh, first six verses uh, are expressing the reality of the rule and reign of Jesus, in my opinion, in heavenly places right now. So um, part of where I want to start with this is that Jesus, um, these allusions to thrones um, and to sort of these heavenly uh, symbols and all of these things set this in heavenly places. Um, Some people would say, would use the term the intermediate heaven, that this is a description of what is taking place in heaven right now for those who have been martyred for their faith or those who have died um, in Jesus, died as a follower of Jesus. And so if we're going to take this uh, figuratively, the setting, I think, in part, I want to just say that I think there's two kind of possibilities here, but the setting in part is what's called the intermediate heaven where Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. What we have to understand is that this language of even um, Satan being bound and, and other things, we're going to jump to that and um, answering that question, how, you know, if this is symbolic and this is taking place right now, how in the world can you say that he's been bound? Because the world is just a disaster and there is sin and death and evil everywhere. And that's a good and legitimate question. But what we have to remember is that on the cross, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was in that event that Paul says in Colossians, Jesus disarmed the power of the enemy. He uh, destroyed the work of the devil. He, He took into his hands, he took from the devil the keys of sin and death. Um, of death and Hades, sorry. And um, so in the death and resurrection, uh, you could even add the ascension of Jesus in there, he dealt a death blow to Satan and 
all of the rulers, principalities, authorities, and powers in the kingdom of darkness. Every demon in hell has now been defeated by Jesus in a comprehensive way, but we still live in this um, already, but not yet reality. And so uh, I believe in part Revelation 21 to 6 is giving a description of the heavenly reality of the uncontested rule and reign. Satan did contest the rule of Jesus, the throne of Jesus, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he now has ascended higher than any other ruler or power authority. Jesus has been crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus now sits enthroned above everything in the heavens, on the earth, everything natural, everything spiritual. And that throne is secure now. He has won it. The victory of Jesus, Christus Victor, the victory of Jesus that came through his suffering and death and resurrection. And this uh, verses one to six are just describing that reality. Um, and they describe it again with language that John uses that Jesus is showing him of thrones. Those thrones, again, setting that reality of this thousand year reign in heavenly places, not necessarily earthly. Also, the language of these souls that are martyred. And with that, I am in super awkward way going to hand it over to my live message where you can catch up with the rest of that. I hope that you're blessed by this. We love you and we'll see you next time. He broke their power. He disarmed them and led them as captives in a train behind him. Jesus is ruling and reigning in heavenly places right now. The enemy, from a spiritual context, we'll talk more about this, Satan has been bound and he has no influence in heavenly places in that way. The throne is secure. That's what he's saying here. The throne that was contested by the devil is now secure. Jesus has demolished the work of the devil. And so his reign in this uh, complete period of history, his reign is sure. So I believe that this is taking place in heavenly places. Again, we can reference the thrones. The other reason that I think that this is a heavenly reality that John is expressing is when he talks about the souls of those who were martyred. He's using language identical to Revelation 6, which every Bible teacher scholar agrees in Revelation 6 is a description of what's happening in heaven right now. John uses that exact same language here. I think part of what John is talking about is the reality of the intermediate heaven. And that those who die now, and specifically those who are martyred, but those who die now are brought up into the presence of Christ and rule and reign with Christ even now. There's some beautiful, I think, uh, realities that we can draw from this about death and what happens right now.
As Christians, we believe that when you die right now, you do not enter into soul sleep. You don't just go into this place of unconsciousness until the next thing happens. When you die now, you are translated and become present, consciously present with Jesus in this intermediate state where you rule and reign with him in authority already. So one of the great uh, realities that, that actually we can take as a, as a place of great hope is that when those who are following Jesus move from this present reality to the next, they don't move into this quasi-confusing, um, uh, ethereal state where they just sort of float around like a vapor aimlessly or they fall into some kind of sleep or unconscious reality. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So one of the great realities we uncover here is that our physical end on this earth is not the end. It's rather just a, a passing moment in time and the really real life begins after that. I think part of what John is talking about here is the reality of this intermediate heaven. You know, we could, I love preaching on heaven. Brenda's gonna end this series next week, but if you really dive into even chapter six, and you just start asking some questions um, about the reality of this intermediate heaven. We don't know. Are we given uh, bodies in this intermediate heaven? We don't know for sure. I know at least one person presently has been raised bodily and is ruling and reigning in bodily form. That's Jesus Christ. His physical ascension is an essential part of our Christian belief. Jesus is in heavenly places, not as a spirit right now, but in his human form. At least one person right now in the intermediate heaven has been resurrected bodily in its completeness. Are others? I'm not sure. But as it talks about the souls of those martyred, it uses language that would lead us to believe, hey, they're conscious. They're using intellect. They remember that they were martyred for their faith because they're asking God, how long until you bring to justice the things that happened on the earth? So there's an awareness of their personality, of their humanity, of their unique individual identity. They don't become somebody different. They don't become this blank slate at all. What an amazing a series of things to reflect on. Time doesn't just evaporate. The reality of life on earth doesn't just evaporate. They're with Jesus now, consciously aware of really real reality. And they're ruling and reigning with him. I believe that that is part of where John is saying this is taking place, this thousand year reign is taking place. There could be another layer here. And again, people have different perspectives on this. But another layer present is the reality that those who give their lives to Jesus, those who follow the Lamb, 
are reborn, are resurrected to new life. And through the church, through you and I, Jesus is expressing the rule and reign of the kingdom of God on the earth. So you and I have been made new. You and I have been resurrected spiritually already. And through Jesus Christ, we are ruling and reigning in the kingdom of God on the earth. We are bringing the kingdom of God to bear on the earth. I think that could be part of what John is referencing here, that for this, this period, this complete period of time, which I believe is the church age. So I believe the millennium is from the resurrection of Jesus to when he comes back, which the Bible technically calls the last days. We're living in them. If people say, ask me, do you think we're living in the last days? Yes, but we're living in the last days the same way Peter and the apostles were in the book of Acts when they said we're in the last days. We are in the last days. Are these the very, very, very last days? I'm not sure. I hope so, but I don't know. But I also understand every generation has thought they live, were living in the last days. Uh, you ask probably my Oma and Opa as they were fleeing Germany in World War II, making their way across Europe on foot, across bloody battlefields. Did they think they were in the last days? You better believe they did. Do the Christians who are in Iran right now facing horrific persecution believe they're in the last days? Yes, they do. But what we have to guard against is looking at all of these headlines and trying to draw all of these dots together, trying to connect a dot and make the headlines sort of the indicator that, oh, like, does the fact that, you know, COVID exists mean we're in the last days? Well, there have been many other more devastating plagues on the earth where literally, like, the Black Plague killed a third of Europe. Do you think they thought they were in the last days then? Yes. So yeah, we are in the last days. This thousand year reign, I think is a symbolic uh, um, uh, figure of speech to talk about the entirety of the church age and the reality that those who are martyred, those who die for their faith and those who die in the Lord rule and reign with him. And we too, as we are walking in newness of life on the earth, those who follow the lamb walk in the reality of his kingdom here on the earth. Third question we have to ask, and we've covered this a few times repeatedly in different parts of this overview of Revelation. When is chapter 20 taking place? Because the pre-millennial would say chapter 20 takes place after chapter 19. But there's some really difficult hurdles we have to cross in order to get to that conclusion. So when is this taking place even as it relates to John's laying out of the book of Revelation. And I've argued, um, not aggressively, but just argued that the book of Revelation, we cannot take it chronologically. There's way too many, way too many things that we have to kind of fudge on in order to try and take Revelation chronologically. So when is chapter 20 taking place? This is another, in my opinion, recapitulation. So the question that we've said always, when you're reading Revelation, the question is not what happens next, it's what does John see next? And what John sees next is not always necessarily what happens next. 
If you wanna use a sports analogy, you could say that what we're entering into in Revelation 21 to six is a replay. This is now looking at the tape again and looking at what happened previously. This is not a following chronologically of chapter 19. Why? Number one, we've already seen in chapter 19, 17 to 21, the total destruction, the total destruction of all who oppose Jesus. We've seen him at the end of chapter 19 totally destroy wickedness, Satan, everyone, all of the nations that have opposed him. So now we're to believe now in chapter 21 to six that somehow uh, some people squeaked through and there's gonna be this like thousand year literal reign, but then at the end of the thousand years, Satan's gonna kind of come back in a, in a renewed sense and people on the earth are going to rebel against God again. No, we've already been told that his judgment has been complete and total and final. We've already been told in chapter 19 that Satan and the beast have been thrown into the lake of fire. They're already there. Does God pull them back out for chapters, for verses one to six of chapter 20? No. John is not following this chronologically. He's recapitulating, he's bringing us back. And what he's done so often and what Jesus has led him to do is he's brought this vision to bear is every time we get to this cataclysmic judgment, like all of the reality of sin and death and dysfunction and destruction are being brought to bear under the judgment of God. Every time we get there, we hit a pause in the tape and God says, oh yeah, just a reminder. If you are in Christ, if you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, if you're following the lamb, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to worry. And so what he's doing again is he's pausing the tape and he's going, hey, remember everyone that if you're following Jesus, you're ruling and reigning with the lamb. Your eternity is secure and you don't have to live in fear of what's going to happen on the earth. And that's part of what is happening here. The third reason that this is not chronological in my opinion is that the nations that are protected from deception of Satan in verses one to three of chapter 20, the nations that are protected, so, so verses one to three say that Satan has been bound and he can't influence the earth in chapters, chapter 21 to three. Those nations that are protected are the same ones who have already been deceived and destroyed by Christ in chapter 19. So to hold a strictly chronological view here, I, in my opinion, doesn't hold up under the weight. The last thing I wanna to bring to your attention here is chapter 20. Most likely in your translation, in the one we've read, begins with the word then. But in the Greek, it's not the word then. I'm not sure why they do this. And, and just so you know, all translations, all of them, are written with specific goals in mind. <laughs> There's no perfect translation. There's none. They all have subtle agendas at play. So this word then in the Greek is the word and, not then. Then is a bit misleading because it leads us to think, well, then means after that. Then is what comes next. But in the Greek, it's the word and, the word chi, 
which means and or also. What you need to know is that often in Revelation, when John is using and, it functions to transition into a new scene, not to move things along chronologically. So when John is introducing 20, verse one to six, and he's using and, he's not saying we're moving now chronologically, he's saying and I saw something new. And I saw what God was showing me next. So all of these things in verses one to six, in my opinion, set the millennium, this thousand year, in my opinion, symbolic reign of Christ within our present church age, which is the period of time from the resurrection of Christ until his final return. One major uh, issue of discussion here then is then what about the binding of Satan? Because it says here that Satan has been bound and he can't deceive the nations. So you're saying that Satan has been bound, but that's not the reality I see everywhere on the earth. That's not the reality that my family has experienced. How can you say Satan has been bound and the earth be such an utter disaster mess? It's a valid question. It's a very valid question and one with which people who hold an amillennial position like I do need to seriously answer. So we will. <laughs> what about the binding of Satan? How can it say he's bound, but the earth still be heaving under his influence? How can Satan be bound, but the reality of scripture also tells us that he's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour and destroy? How can those two things be real together? I wanna give you a couple of thoughts. If we actually look at the text of Revelation 23, John gives a very specific purpose for the binding of Satan. And that very specific purpose is that he will not be able to deceive the nations. Twice, he mentions that as the context of this binding that he's talking about. So what John does not say is that he cannot exert any influence. What John does not say is that he cannot tempt. What John does not say is that he cannot push forward his agenda to destroy the church and the body. He says that he cannot deceive the nations. One of the things that we see in the resurrection of Jesus when he says, all authority has been given unto me, I'm sending you, I'm sending you to the nations. I'm sending you out. We see at that point the gospel break out of Israel to all of the surrounding nations, to the whole world. And at the same point that that's happening, Jesus says in this world, you're gonna have many troubles and trials. Take heart, I've overcome the world. So what is it? It's an already, but not yet. See, Satan has been bound from systematically deceiving the nations of the earth so that the gospel can ex advance and express itself across the whole world. But there will be a period of time, I believe, as we get closer to the return of Christ, where Satan will be uh, 
released in greater measure and will be able to deceive the nation so that we get to this picture we see so often of revelation of all the nations converging against the lamb and his people. But today that doesn't happen. We see in this era, this church age, where the gospel is going forward into every nation. I believe that this is talking about God restraining Satan and limiting his capacity to systematically uh, kind of produce worldwide deception so that his gospel can advance. That's one of the things. So this is not saying that he won't tempt that he won't wreak havoc, that he won't steal or kill or destroy. This is very specific. Number two, I just want to point this out. You don't need Satan personally involved in your life for you to make horrific wrong decisions. (laughs) So let's just not forget that, right? Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. He is a spiritual being, but he's not omnipresent like God is. He is in one fixed location at a time. I don't need Satan personally wreaking havoc in my life to make a mess of the life around me. We don't need Satan active in every way in order for the earth to be a a flaming mess of dysfunction and destruction and brokenness and evil and sin. Scripture says it's actually our hearts that are wicked beyond comprehension. So Satan doesn't need to be bound uh, in, in his totality. If he's bound in totality, sin and evil would still exist on the earth. That's what I mean to say. Number whatever, four. Nobody's taking notes anyway. Matthew 28, I know the truth. Um, Matthew 28, Colossians 1 to 3, Ephesians 1. All teach us presently we are seated with Christ in heavenly places with authority over the enemy, that Satan has been disarmed and that Jesus has triumphed over him and crushed his head, but still he exerts his influence and agenda. So we live in this already not yet reality. I think in Revelation 23, the binding of Satan is specific, not general and that we live in this already not yet. Lastly, let's just move on. It's not lastly, we're moving on though. Uh, The first and second resurrection, this is the only time in scripture where uh, we're given this picture of a first and second resurrection. I believe, and we we could literally spend a week talking about this and debating back and forth. I believe there's a very strong possibility that this first resurrection that John is making reference to is not the physical bodily resurrection of the saints, but a spiritual resurrection experienced from those who pass on from this life to the next, but also could be a reference to the resurrection of our souls when we become renewed in Christ. So this first and second resurrection doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bodily, physical resurrection like when we receive our heavenly bodies. This, I think, very strongly could point toward 
the resurrection that comes with those who die in Christ and are received in his presence in the intermediate heaven and the resurrection. Paul says that once we were dead in our sins, but now we've been made alive. We've been resurrected in Christ. We've been given a new life and seated with him. We've been raised to new life, Colossians 3 says. So I believe that John is talking about two different kinds of resurrection here. So just to put a kind of bow on this, my perspective, again, just humbly, is that I think Revelation 21 to 6 is telling us that during the course of this present church age, Satan is prevented from orchestrating a global assault against the church, but one day that restraint will be taken off. And it's during this time right now that all who die having believed in Jesus will join him in heaven in the intermediate state where they will rule and reign over the affairs of the earth with Jesus. And that those of us who are on the earth and with Jesus have been resurrected into new life and are ruling and reigning and expressing the kingdom of God on the earth. Now, that's what I believe this reference to a thousand year reign and rule is. Let's keep moving. John 27 to 10. Just before the return of Christ, this restriction, I believe, placed on Satan will be lifted. And we can see this in these verses where once again, he'll deceive the unbelieving nations and gather the nations to launch a war, a global war against the church, which Revelation calls Armageddon. I believe that we're going to get to a point in time where it very graphically and very really looks like the church is going to be snuffed out, where it's breathed its last breath and the church will be consumed by the dragon and his army. I believe that's what it's going to look like but we know how the story ends. Let's continue on. I wanna just make one reference here. Again, we could spend weeks. Gog and Magog. Is this Russia and Iran? No. <laughs> Let's just kind of put that very simply. John is actually referencing all the nations from the four corners of the earth. He's, he's, he's drawing on Ezekiel 38 and 39 here where Ezekiel mentions Gog and Magog, but Gog and Magog then are a representation of Babylon who's coming to overthrow Israel. And so John picking up on this language says, yeah, it's gonna be like it was back then when it looked like all hope was lost, when it looked like there was only death and destruction and despair, it's gonna look like that all of the nations are gonna gather against the lamb and his followers. Again, we've gotta be so careful. So many times, so many times, people have written books saying it's this nation, it's that nation, and they've been wrong. We have to be very careful with where, where we uh, run on these rabbit trails, these prophetic rabbit trails. I believe that what John is saying is there is going to be a concerted global effort to stamp out the church and the followers of Jesus. And it's gonna come from every side. And look at the language that he uses next. Verse nine, they'll surround the camp of the saints. This is 
beautiful language. This is bringing us back to Israel coming out of bondage in Egypt as a, a fledgling nation with no land of their own, no place, living as exiles and foreigners. That's what God says we are today. What a, this is uh, such a strong picture for us and a strong confrontation. Are you living your life now as a foreigner or a resident of the world? How, what's your posture? It says that they, they surround Israel like Israel's camped out. They're living as exiles. They've got no material sort of uh, ownership of, uh, of, of the stuff that they have. They've no land to say it, it, that it's theirs. They're living as exiles and foreigners. And the question that we're confronted with here is how are you living right now? Are you living on this earth like you are fully 100% bought into the reality of this life or are you living as an exile in a foreigner on a journey toward that day of salvation? As Abraham said in Hebrews 12, we, we read about Abraham being on a journey, sojourning on this earth. This is what we're confronted with here. What is your posture? Are you so invested into getting what you want out of this life? that you are actually not living anymore like an exile? Are you so invested in the material reality of this world that you're not thinking about the next? Have you, have you planted your roots so deeply into the present? I think that's a good question. How do you live? Do you live like the stuff of this world is temporary or do you live like it's yours forever? I think that's part of what we're confronted here. Verse 10, fire from heaven falls and we have this battle that never was. I wanna point that out. The battle never happens. Jesus shows up Fire comes down. Is it going to be literal fire? I'm not sure. There was in Sodom and Gomorrah. Is it? I, I don't know. But I think it's obviously it's figurative to talk about the holy justice and judgment of God. But we're not called to fight in that way, in the natural. We show up with Jesus, but the battle's already won. It, it was won on the cross. It was one when he disarmed the rulers and principalities, authorities and powers and, and led them as captives in his train. It was done. End of the chapter, 11 to 15, shows us the reality that Jesus is returning as judge and all of humanity, everyone who's ever lived will be raised again. I want you to hear that, will be raised again to face his judgment. Nobody is getting out. It says that books were opened. There's several books opened here. In addition to the books that were opened, the book of life was brought. What are the books? The books are the record of everything you've ever said and thought and done. Everything in this life 
that you've done to someone else, that you've thought about someone else, that you've said to someone else. Everything in this life is being recorded. Paul says that we will be judged based on every single word that's come out of our mouth. The books are the record of our life and how we've lived. Those who have rejected Christ will be judged based on their own merit and it won't suffice. Those of us who have followed the lamb and surrendered our lives to him and, and walked under his lordship and leadership who are found in the book of life, our eternity is not judged based on what we've done, but I want to point out something important to you. You and I will be judged. It's not a judgment for eternity. It's a judgment for how we've lived this life and how we've carried the calling of God on our life, how we've stewarded his presence, how we've stewarded his resources and his blessing. I wanna just read a couple things to you because often we have this idea, I'm a Christian, I'm not gonna be judged. Oh, yes, you are. Yes, I am. And the judgment will be, what did you do with what I gave you? How did you live? Did you live as an exile in the land, always following the lamb wherever he goes? Or did you live as a resident rejecting the reality of the kingdom in the everyday things of your life? Second Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul is talking to Christians. He's talking to people in the church in Corinth. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. First Corinthians three, anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials. You can build your life with whatever material you want. Gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw, but on the judgment day. This is why I said to you a number of weeks ago, in, in my opinion, the fire of heaven is gonna be hotter than the fire of hell. On judgment day, the fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Here at the end of 20, we're confronted again. John is confronting us. Jesus is confronting us with how you've lived. How have you stewarded the life that God has given you so far? I wanna just ask you a few questions. And Spencer, if you can come up, why don't you stand with me? This is the last message from this book that I'm gonna be preaching. And as I mentioned, Pastor Brenda is ending things as we've kind of walked through this whole series, we've been confronted with some big questions from this book. Question number one, where is your allegiance? Whose character marks your life? 
whose way of living marks your life. This is what John has been asking us and confronting us with, with the, 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 those who are sealed with the mark of the lamb versus those who are sealed with the mark of the beast, who, whose perspective in life is driving your decision-making, is driving your values, is driving how you spend money, is driving what you do sexually, is driving what you do in your family, is driving how you uh, work toward you know, whatever's next in your life, whose perspective is marking your life? Whose nature are you carrying on the earth today? So you can be right about doctrine, but so wrong in how you carry it out and walking in sin just the same. Whose nature is filling and infusing your life? How are you and I going to walk in, in, in greater pressure on the earth? Are we gonna walk with the nature of the lamb with gentleness and humility and compassion and kindness and patience and perseverance? Or are we gonna, are we gonna walk with the character of the dragon? Anger, impatience, animosity, division, anger, hatred. The question is, whose allegiance are you giving? Who's marked your life? Second question we've been asked through this whole book, where is your attention? I.e., who are you worshiping? Not who are you singing songs to on Sunday, where is the attention of your life going? Our attention goes to the place of our worship. Third question, what is your life actually built on? If God was gonna test your life and mine with fire today, what would be left? What would be left? What have you built your life on? Jesus has invited you. He's created you with a purpose and a calling. He's given you resources and capacity and intellect and, and a life to steward. This question is, what have you built with what I've given you? We will all stand before Jesus one day and have to account for how we lived with what he gave us. And I'm imploring you as I implore myself, would you begin to reset the priorities of your life, to invest not in what's here and now today, but invest in what will last for eternity. Let's just close our eyes here this morning as we finish up. For you personally, I just want you to be honest with yourself. Where is your allegiance today? Is it to yourself? Is your allegiance to some cultural ideologies? Is your allegiance to rejecting Jesus? It's a good time to ask the question, have you ever 
in genuine brokenness, have you ever said, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. I want to give you allegiance in my life. That's the most basic question we can ask. Who is leading my life? Who's, who's face are my eyes on today you can actually do what scripture says you can repent you can turn around from everything that you've been investing your time and energy and emotion and capacity into that is not Jesus and say Jesus I want to turn to you today I want to give my allegiance to you today I want to give my attention to you today and I want to build a life that's, that lasts, that can pass through the fire of your judgment. I just want to invite you to pray with me today with wherever you're at. And if you're able to, I just under the sound of your breath, I just, I want to, I want to invite you to just say, Jesus, I humble myself before you today. And whether I have been rejecting you my whole life or I have told you that I've been walking with you, Jesus, I invite you to be Lord in my life again today. I want you to literally pray that to him, even now. If you don't feel that you can, that's okay. But whether you've been in church 50 years or today's your first time, Jesus is asking, would you allow me, would you allow me to be Lord and leader in your life? It's your choice to make. I want you just under your breath, just to follow that up with, Jesus, I surrender. I surrender my life to you. My priorities, my values, my convictions, my hopes and my dreams, I surrender them to you. And I ask that you would lead me that you would renew me and restore me, that you would point out anything in me that has grieved you or offended you or quenched you. And here's what I want you to just end off praying. Jesus, what this week are you inviting me to surrender or turn from? It could be a relationship, it could be a business pursuit, it could be um, a certain sort of ideology or way of thinking. I, I want you to say, Jesus, what are you inviting me to lay down, to turn away from very practically this week? How can I move closer to you? What things have I had a death grip on that I've been refusing to give to you? And as something comes to mind for you this morning, I want to invite you this week, here's where the kingdom begins. It's stepping into that in reality. It's moving toward that in reality.
thank you, Jesus, that we, each one of us here can trust you with what is most important and most precious to us. We can trust you with our heart. We can trust you with our deepest longings and desires. And so we, as best we can, we surrender those to you and we invite you to convict us, Holy Spirit, of anything in our life that is competing for the attention that Jesus deserves. Amen.